0: back to the Cycling with Watts podcast. I am your host Jared Watts, and this is episode number twenty-five. Today we are talking about the Tour of Flanders that just happened this weekend on Sunday. We're gonna wrap up that race, and then there's not a lot of new tech coming out right now. We got some uh, big Grand Tours coming up, you know, in a couple months. That's when a lot of tech comes out. So we're gonna talk about maybe some tech for the Cobble Classics and what do the pros do different to their bikes to. Make them rideable, because those cobbles are tough and brutal. So let's hit that orchestra music and get right into the show. Alright, so before we get into the show, I just wanted to do a shout-out. Last week, Blast Beats and Bicycle radio show had me on. We talked for about an hour with the host, Jason Lardy about all the classics coming up. We talked about Gent-Wevelgem, Flanders, Roubaix. We uh, we predicted Gent-Wevelgem, and uh, yeah, we both got that wrong. We were uh, we were far off on that one. We were definitely off on Tour of Flanders because that was a pretty big surprise, I would say, with uh, the winner of the men's race winning his first ever pro race, ever, and he did it at Flanders. There was a ton of like first-time Flanders people or. Very short experience in Flanders, doing really well, both old and young. We'll get into that, but definitely a big shout out to Blast Beats and Bicycles, Jason Lardy, for having me on. If you did not hear that, it is episode 23. Definitely go check it out if you have not already listened to it. But today is all about Flanders, tour of Flanders. I'm recording this on a Monday night, it was on Sunday, and Oh, it was a heck of a race. If you did not see it, definitely go watch some of the highlights. It was just amazing from start to finish. Now, I'll be honest, I did not watch it from the start, but it was the first time in the U.S. that we could actually watch a race from start to finish, so shout out to Flow Bikes for doing that. Thank you, because usually it sucks. You can only get like the last hour of a race or whatever. But I picked it up about halfway through, still watch like three and a half hours because it's a freaking long race. but absolutely just a brilliant race. There was a ton of attacks. There was a ton of chase groups. I think at you know, within like the last half hour of the race, we had like three different chase groups. people were getting strung out, brought brought back together, strung out, brought back together. We had crashes, people get up from crashes and still like almost win the race. So it was absolutely fan, fantastic to watch, definitely go watch some highlights if you have not seen any of it yet, and then next week we got Roubaix, so it was, you know, Gent-Wevelgum a week ago, Flanders a day ago, and Roubaix coming up, it's just, oh, it's a great time to be alive, be a cycling fan, be a fan of just, like, people working really, really hard and me just sitting there watching them do it, this is one of the best times to be alive, (laughs) This is always a great part of the cycling season. I still really have a big heart for the Grand Tours just because it's every single day that you get to see cycling. But it's also fun, you know, here in the U.S. we have football. And every week you get excited for Sunday football and you build up that anticipation all week. You listen to all the analysis of the game. Whoever your team is, you know, what's the injury report coming up? Who's going to be out? Who's not at 100%? You get all this anticipation for each game. That's kind of like the Cobble Classic season. There's all this anticipation the week before, and then the next week there's another game, there's another race to be had, and there's all the anticipation for that. So I think it makes it a really, really exciting part of the season. So what are some of the big talking points from Flanders? Well, the Italians dominated both the men's and the women's side. Yet Alberto Batoli of EF, Education First, taking it on the men's side, and Marta Bastianelli, the European champion from Virtue Cycling. She took it over on the women's side, both Italian. And uh, this was Alberto's first professional win, the 25-year-old, his first professional win. And Marta Bastianelli, she has had some experience winning in the past as she is the current European champion. She's a former world champion. So she's definitely had a lot of experience under her belt. But Alberto Batoli, he is winning his first ever pro race, and he is doing it at the Tour of Flanders. Now, who are some other big names that this was their first ever Tour of Flanders? How about uh, the current world champion from Movistar, Alejandro Valverde, competing in his first ever Tour of Flanders? and getting a top 10 finish. You also had Matthew Vanderpool. It was his first ever Tour of Flanders. He got a fourth place finish. I mean, that's absolutely incredible. There was a lot of first-time people making their first ever Tour of Flanders debut, and they performed really well. So that was very exciting to see. Walt Van Aert, he was in his second Tour of Flanders. He was in that top 10. I mean, he was making exciting from the start. So, I think that was very interesting, seeing some people who weren't these legendary, storied people who had been there since, like, the conception of Tour of Flanders. I love that. Now, don't get me wrong. Guys like Greg Van Avermaet, Peter Sagan, love watching them. I'm going to get to GVA later on, because I really want to see him come out with a win and maybe some things why I didn't feel like he won this race. But a lot of of first-timers out there, and it was great to watch, so... The Dolly of EF Education first, getting the win on the men's side. And this is EF Education's first monument win. And so that is very exciting. I really like EF Education first this year. I think they are doing some really cool things on the professional cycling side where they're trying to push a little bit of the boundaries. And they have a freaking sweet jersey. Come on, that pink and navy blue tie-dye meshness that it is. It's absolutely gorgeous. I love watching it in the Peloton. They also have some Americans, Lawson Craddock, Taylor Finney, T.J. Van Garden. they got some Americans who could be making a big splash. I think Taylor Finney might be a dark horse for Perry Roubaix next year, or for next week. I think last year he had a top 10 finish, and that was super big for Taylor Finney, an American cyclist. So Taylor Finney, I'm going to say dark horse prediction for Roubaix next week. But the favorite definitely going into the race for EF Education was Sep Van Marka, and he was a great teammate. He had a little bit of an injury early on in the week, and so he was not up to 100%. And he played the perfect domestique role for Alberto Petoli. And he selfishly gave up, you know, a chance to push it at Flanders because Alberto had the best of it. It wasn't Sep Van Mark's day, and he... He sacrificed himself, and he did a great job being a great domestique and a teammate to help Batoli finish to the end. Now, Batoli did it beautifully, by the way. He did a solo 17 kilometers. When he went off on that solo, you had, like, the who's who's behind him. You had Wout Van Aert, Matthew Vanderpool. You had Peter Sagan. You had Alexander Kristoff. You had Greg Van Avermaet. You had Alejandro Valverde. You just had like this, I mean, so much cycling class behind him. And this young 25-year-old who's never won a bike race just says, see ya, solos off by himself. I'm like, there's no shot that he holds him off. And the, the I was getting really mad at the announcers. I, I didn't love them. Uh, that's thats a whole nother story. But they were kind of kept saying like, well, they might not catch him. And I was like, "There's, they definitely catch him. you got like 10 of the best guys in the world chasing down this no-name 25-year-old. Now, he's not a no-name. That's a little bit dramatic. But, like, come on. I thought for sure they were going to catch him. And the totally just, he went all out. Like, chapeau to him. He did an incredible ride at that 17 kilometers. By I mean, it was just absolutely incredible. He did not let the pressure get to him he just went hard, 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 and got it. And so that was absolutely fantastic to watch. And he made his move up that final climb, up the final climb. And I'm totally going to butcher this, but the Ode de Quermont, actually, I felt like that was pretty good. The Quermont is where he made his move 17 kilometers by himself. So congrats to him. So what else went on in the day? Well, Takuna Quickstep did not win this race. You heard that right. Takuna Quickstep did not win this race. I mean, they've only lost like two of the classics. It's been absolutely incredible. They've just been so dominant this year. But guys like Zendik Steibar, he just wasn't there. Philip Gilbert, he had some stomach problems that he was dealing with, so he wasn't there. You had Yves Lampard, who just didn't have the legs to keep up with all the attacks. You had Bob Youngles who just, they didn't have it. This was not their best showing, but that's okay because they were still redeemed by a second place. I mean, like, one of the talking points of this race is that Takuna Quickstep didn't win it, but they still took second. They had two guys in the top 10. I mean, that's thats crazy. Casper Asgren, who was a 24-year-old, so he had a 25 win it, and a 24-year-old takes second. I mean, that's really showing some... I don't know, maybe a trend of some young cyclists really stepping up in these big-level races? Well, Kasper Askren, he really did a good job of animating the race early. He was in a lot of the attacks. He spent like 40K with Seth Van Mark and Dylan Van Bar of Team Sky and Sepp Van Mark of EF Education first. And he was staying with all of their attacks. He was out in the lead group. And then once they got caught by the rest of the peloton and some of those really big name guys that i mentioned before he then followed their attacks and then he had the legs to beat the chasing group who was chasing alberto at the end and he outsprinted him he took second so congrats to him like i said 25 year old winning it 24 year old on the second step but that's funny that this is a kind of a major story across You know, every video that I've seen so far wrapping up the Tour of Flanders, well, I'm talking about it, but all the articles I'm reading, this is a talking point that Takuna Quickstep did not win this race, yet they still took second. So I think they have a lot to prove next week in Roubaix. They have a little bit of making up to do. This team is built for the classics. They've always been built for the classics. They've always targeted the classics. Their fans want to see classics wins. Their sponsors want to see classics wins. They're about the classics. So I think they really do have a little bit of proving to do next week in Roubaix. Now that's, I mean, kind of a big ask, of course, because they've had an amazing season so far. And then they will probably do well in the tour and later on down the road the rest of the year. But still, they are built for the classics. This is what they are are about. They have a lot of talent. Of course, you have kind of a no-name on their team taking second place at the Tour of Flanders. That's just absolutely incredible. And being a 24-year-old, that is very young in racing. So, I'm excited to see how de Kooning Quick Step responds next week at Roubaix. So, now I want to talk about Matthew Vanderpool. Now, he had a fourth place finish, which if you didn't watch the race, you'd say, well, that's kind of disappointing. I mean, there's been all of this hype around this guy who is a cyclocross star. We have Out Van Aert, who's a cyclocross star. And he took fourth. That's great, but I really wanted him to win. Now, he is kind of still making his first couple of starts in these road races. This wasn't his first race of the year. He got his first win just a couple days ago. But the incredible part about Matthew Vanderpol in this race is he had a devastating crash. I mean, I thought he was done... I thought he was out with about a half hour to go. He flatted his front tire and he is in, he's on the right hand side of the road. And there is a sidewalk just to the right of him. So he flats, you see him put his hand up. He's using one hand now to like, just cradle the bike from not falling over and tipping. So he's kind of like, Real jerky, shaky, looks like he's at about 14 drinks trying to drive a bike, <laughs> as that's the only analogy I could think of, and so he's doing this real shaky thing, one hand on the bike, one hand in the air, trying to flag down the mechanics, and at first, I thought this just happened out of the blue, but as he's shaking, all of a sudden, boom, he flies over his handlebars, looks like he lands right on his shoulder, his bike goes end over end and now he's laying on the ground like writhing in pain holding his shoulder and i'm like oh there's a broken collarbone there's matthew Vanderpoel's tour of flanders this is probably the rest of the season as i think he's only going to be doing the classics i don't know how much road racing he's going to be doing but he's definitely targeting the classics and so i i was like he's done there's no way Yet he gets back on his bike and takes fourth place. I mean, that was absolutely incredible and insane to watch. I I thought it was incredible that he just got back on his bike. And then when he started attacking and he got back into that group with guys like Van Avermont, Peter Sagan, Alberto Contador. I I was like, this is absolutely incredible to watch. And then he still took fourth place. So he beat guys (laughs) Like Peter Sagan. So uh, that was absolutely incredible to watch. Just the drama that was unfolding throughout the race. And watching like 14 replays of what actually happened, when he went off onto the sidewalk, he hit like a small one inch by one inch square opening in the sidewalk that his front tire hit it and then he just... He flew over. So it looked like a little patch that they were repairing or, yeah, I don't know. But there was a little, little square opening in the sidewalk. He just so happened to hit it and just got launched from his bike. But absolutely incredible that he took that hard of a fall and still got back up and took fourth place. That was some crazy toughness. And I was watching a video... Uh, on GCN Global Cycling Network on YouTube definitely a great channel go check it out I've been following them for a couple of years and really 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 like their stuff but they were talking about Vanderpool and just how fun he is to watch and I, I didn't really realize exactly why they were saying it but they're very right in that he just looks effortless when he's on the bike he's got this panache to him this cool this classy yet arrogance to him kind of like a Peter Sagan and he has this flash of ah, just this air of coolness around him and he is very exciting to watch on the bike and I think the tour of Flanders on Sunday really helped cement that in that he's super tough as well I mean he looks like this cool calm collected guy on the bike he flies over his handlebars he's in pain on the ground you think his Flanders is over boom gets back up takes fourth place incredible that was just brilliant to watch absolutely brilliant to watch so now I want to talk about some of the big names that were left out of the finish line so you had Greg Van Avermaet you had Peter Sagan you had Michael Matthews you had Nikki Terpstra Nikki Terpstra crashed out of the race so early sucks for him I'm not a huge fan of him I I like him. Don't get me wrong. I do like him. I just if Peter Sagan crashed out, I would be devastated that early in the race. Nicky Terps, uh, yeah, didn't uh, I didn't lose any sleep over it. Let's uh, let's put it that way. So there's been some speculation that maybe Peter Sagan is not at a hundred percent right now. He had some sickness before Torino Adriatico, and he just hasn't had. A win yet kind of in these in these in this classic season and so you, I, you know I just don't know it's always hard to tell if someone really isn't on form and I'm definitely not that good of a cycling mind to be able to really say that guy is not on form but he's still finishing in the top 10 I think he is targeting some of these later races like liege bastogne liege maybe he's targeting a, a back-to-back years at Roubaix I don't know, but I, I feel like maybe he might not be targeting these races and so he isn't doing as crazy of moves, but he, he still does a really good job of when he doesn't have teammates, he just follows everybody else, and he really does a good job of protecting himself, staying, you know, three, four wheels back, and that's why I feel like Greg Van Avermont really did a bad job in this race. Now, I shouldn't say bad job because he he's a marked rider. I mean when Greg Van Avermont makes a move, people follow. So it's tough for, for him to get away. But in this chase group that was trying to follow Batoli when he made his move, but they were the, the lead group for a while with like 80 K's to go. I think this lead group started and formed and Greg Van Avermaet was there and he did a lot of time on the front of that group. I mean, he was there and then he just kept attacking that group. Now maybe that was his strategy just to attack and try to string them out, see who would fall away and try to bring it to a reduced bunch sprint and that he would have the legs to do it because he got them tired earlier on. So that certainly could have been his strategy, but then you look at a guy like Peter Sagan who just sits three or four wheels back and when Greg Van Avermaet makes his move, he just follows everybody else as they slowly catch back up to him. And I just think that's absolutely brilliant, and that's why Peter is Peter, and he's able to have that energy at the end and out-sprint guys who are real sprinters. Even though he's technically maybe not a real sprinter, he can still out-sprint them because he does such brilliant moves. I felt like Greg Van Avermaet kind of wanted this so bad, and he was just attacking at points that wasn't smart. People kept following him. He was marked every time he moved somebody else moved with them, and they always pulled him back, so I, I just found it dumb, I was like, Greg, stop doing so much work, because I was really rooting for him, and I really want him to show up in Roubaix, because he's been so close now for, I just feel like every race he's coming up short, now he did wear the yellow jersey in the Tour de France last year, but I really want to see him get a uh, a classics win, I mean, that's he was targeting Tour of Flanders. He's never had a Tour of Flanders win. And so I, I'm feeling for him right now. And so I hope he can protect himself in Roubaix and he can be smart enough that he can have a chance there at the the finish line to take that win. So like I said, Tour of Flanders was great to watch. It was fascinating from the start. And then when that lead group broke out with like 80k to go that's really when the race got interesting because it was just like attack after attack after attack after attack and they were all just kind of watching each other who's gonna go now who's gonna go next and once one person went they all followed except for alberto when he finally went with about seven k's to go he was able to fend off everybody else he built himself like a nice 30 second lead and took the win so congrats to him And uh, before we end pro news, of course, we got to get into uh, Sagan Watch. All right, so the day before Flanders, Peter Sagan posts six pictures on Instagram, the little slider ones, with the caption, one more sleep until it's tour Flanders time. It's him in front of the podium asking questions, him with his teammates, him with another guy who's got a mustache, Again, in front of the podium, him with his sweet sunglasses on, and another picture with him with sunglasses on. Now, the first time that I saw this, I thought I was looking at a picture from, like, six years ago of Peter Sagan's first ever Tour of Flanders. And I was like, wait, he didn't ride for Bora then. I don't know when his Tour of Flanders was. I was just very confused because it was this baby-faced Peter Sagan that was showing up on my Instagram timeline. I mean, he shaved it all. He shaved off the mustache. He got this nice, cute little schoolboy haircut. Like, he just looks like a very, very young Peter Sagan. And I don't know why. Because, like, two days before that, he posted a video of him shooting a video. And he's got this dirty mustache. He's got that fuzzy upper lip. And now he looks like a little schoolboy. Come on, Peter. Like, you're the bad boy of cycling. I don't want to see you with a baby face and a nice, perfect haircut. I want to see you with raggedy hair, a Fu Manchu, or shave your head after Tour de France kicks you out and grow a Fu Manchu because you just want to be the bad boy of cycling. So that is your Sagan watch today. Usually it's like a cheery thing, but I was kind of mad. I'm like, I don't want a baby face Sagan. I want a dirty, man, mustache-looking Sagan. So that's it. Gone watch. Pro news is done. Let's get into some tech. So, let's say you want to go out and ride the cobbles. How can you make your bike somewhat like the pros and do a couple little hacks so that you're more comfortable on those cobbles? And these are things that the pros do. So, I'm going to give you five things here that the pros do. One, I don't like to wear gloves while I'm out riding. Maybe I would wear gloves if I was going to go ride a bunch of cobbles, but I could also double wrap my handlebar tape. This is a very common practice in the Pro Peloton to double wrap their handlebar tape. So it just gives them that extra added bit of comfort as they are on these cobbles for just a long, long, long time. And all that vibration that is coming up through the bike gives them a little bit of extra cushion in there. Now being a mechanic, I do wrap people's handlebar tape with like gel underneath these like little gel sticky things. A lot of people do like that as well, especially on more kind of touring adventure bikes where they will be riding off road. So if you don't want to do that, there's also gel stickies that you can place kind of right behind the hood of your brake lever, shift lever. And then on the tops of the bars, you can get these gel things Or just double wrap your handlebar tape number two wider tires this is a trend across the board but you'll see you know riders go from 25s what they usually race on up to 28 even all the way up to 30 in like roubaix and so that is a way to just get again extra cushion also when you run that lower tire pressure it allows more surface area of the tire to come in contact with the road surface. So when you're going over those cobbles, instead of just kind of bouncing over those cobbles with maybe a a 23 millimeter tire, as opposed to a 28, where you can run that lower pressure, you might be at 120 at a 23, and let's say 75 with a 28, that allows that tire to just sit into those crevices and cracks even better as opposed to the 120, which is just gonna bounce over it. So it actually allows the tire to form more to that surface. So wider tires. Also a couple other things, tubeless tires, again you can run that lower pressure so you can get even more grip and you have less likely of a chance to get a flat tire because with the tube you run lower pressures and you get pinch flats. You don't get that with tubeless. Now one thing that the pros do that you probably won't do is get handmade tires. You'll see this in Roubaix where there is this special shop who does handmade tires and they've been doing tires for Roubaix for a long, long time. They're absolutely beautiful with that gum wall finish on there, but that's kind of just something for the pros. I think I looked it up one time and it was, you know, it was like a solid $120 for one tubular tire. It, could have, it, it might have even been $180. It was expensive. It was like, ooh, that, is, uh, that would hurt to pay that much for a tire. But they're the bros. They can do it. So what's another little piece of tech? This isn't really tech. It's definitely a hack. But bottles will fly out of your bottle cages because you are rattling a lot more with your bike. How do you stop that from happening? Well, there's two different ways. Put a little grip tape inside of that water bottle cage That will help to keep that bottle nice and secure. Or you can get like an aluminum bottle cage that has, you know, grippies almost on the the part that you slip the bottle into. I think it's Arundel, Arundel, something like that. It's a brand name and they actually make a water bottle cage. You'll see a lot of pros riding it here that have sticky parts on the top of that bottle cage that just help secure that bottle even better. Kind of like the grip tape idea, but this is actually a special bottle cage made for that idea now one other thing that i think is almost like a, a myth a legend is yeah i hear a lot of people say well i would never ride my carbon wheels on the cobbles well that's stupid why would you not ride your car- carbon wheels people think that it's just going to absolutely destroy these carbon wheels the pros started using carbon wheels like 10 years ago and it's standard in the pro peloton. You're thinking, well, they are pros. They can get a new wheel. Yeah, but it's a carbon wheel. It's a it's a really, really, really durable wheel. So if you ever get the chance to do it, ride your carbon wheels. Don't worry about taking a beater pair. That's going to detract away from your experience, I believe, because I'm going to go as fast as I can on the cobbles, of course. I mean, sure, you can use an aluminum rim if you have it. But if you have the carbon, don't worry about destroying it. So look pro while you're out on the road with your carbon wheels. Also, take those couple little pro hacks, handlebar tape, the wider tires, the tubeless tires, which I think are going to become bigger and bigger and bigger. And I really haven't heard a lot of people outlets come out about if they're being used a lot in the classics. I assume that they're not if we haven't heard a lot about it, but I think over the next couple of years, that will become much bigger in the classics because tire pressure is such a massive thing, especially in cyclocross, and it's becoming even bigger with you know, things like the Coppa Classics and running just the right exact tire pressure, which is easier to achieve with those tubeless tires. And like I said, there's a lot of added benefits with the lower tire pressure. Also, not having to worry about flatting as much, so I think that's going to become bigger and bigger. Do a couple different things with your bottle cages. Get handmade tires and use your carbon wheels. That is it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Cycling With Watts podcast. Like I said, my name is Jared Watts. try to put out a podcast about every single week. You can find me on Instagram at cyclingwithwatts.com. If you have questions, comments, anything you want to say about the show, please email me at cyclingwithwatts.com at gmail.com check out my website cyclingwithwatts.com but that is it we'll let that orchestra music play us out peace